0: In 1970, when my wife and I left New York and moved to uh, St. Paul, Minnesota to be a shliach, to work to enhance, increase Jewish education, Jewish observance in the state of Minnesota. Actually, the way it happened was that there was already a shliach there, and he needed help because programs were growing. And he came here to Brooklyn to 770, and uh, I was in the yeshiva, and he sits me down, and he shows me these beautiful pictures of the building that he has and the campsite that he has for the, for the uh, day camp, and it looked wonderful. I said, where is this? He said, Minnesota. What did I know from Minnesota? You know where Minnesota is? Nobody knows. So I agreed to go. Thing is, he showed me pictures only taken during the summer. (laughs) So I'm uh, proud to say that I have survived 30 winters in Minnesota. Two of them by not being there, which is right. (laughs) So in 1970, we were sitting around. We had this huge building that we used for weekends for Shabbos programs and now the summer was coming and there wasn't going to be any weekends because the students are away colleges are closed people are on vacation what are you going to do with a big building in the summer so we decided that in 1970 there were two new yeshivas kind of trailblazing yeshivas where adult men could go to study to study from the beginning to do some catch-up learning but there were no places anywhere in the world for a woman to do this so we thought well maybe we should make a yeshiva for women unheard of a yeshiva for girls of course but a yeshiva for women who hadn't studied when they were young unheard of So we asked some of our supporters if they would go for the idea and they said, sure, it's a great idea, do a survey, because we kept telling them that there is no yeshiva anywhere in the world for women. So they said, well, maybe that's because (laughs) nobody is interested. So do a study, find out if there's, Uh, we can't do studies. We have no time for this stuff. We figured, okay, we'll just start. We'll start small. So we sent little flyers like we sent it out to six campuses in the Midwest, and 18 women came to the program. This is 1970. We thought that we would have classes from around 4 in the afternoon till around dinner time. The rest of the time, there'll be some sightseeing, I don't know what to do in Minnesota, I still haven't figured it out. <laughs> but, you know, uh, free time, it's vacation. i got to tell you that the 18 women who showed up for Beis Khanna in 1970 were literally frightening. Frightening. They were the disillusioned, radical, political left who thought that they could change the world and were disillusioned because they couldn't and now they were angry at the world these are people who were who were ready to, to give up their lives for their political purposes and so on and they stormed into the Chabad house and said what <laughs> what, are you, what? what are you going to teach me and how is this going to change the world all the other rabbis ran away. <laughs> Literally, they, they just left, and I'm stuck there. So I tell them, "Okay, fine. We'll we'll uh, we'll start class at four o'clock." So what do you mean at four o'clock? What are we gonna do till four o'clock? I say, you know, it's vacation time. We're not here for vacation. We want to learn from eight in the morning till three in the morning every single day every day sometimes till 4 8 o'clock they're up and ready start again what else like hungry sponges demanding hungry sponges and how is this going to change the world and so what if we keep mitzvahs and what's Torah what does it say about the world how is it going to stop the war in Vietnam (laughs) Did I get an education that year? This is my first year at a yeshiva. And I figured, so this is what the world's all about. Everybody wants to know how Yiddishkeit, how Torah and Mitzvahs are going to change the political reality. Okay, I'm ready for the next session. The next session came a few months later, and 48 women showed up just by word of mouth. And I start my lectures and I'm talking about politics and, about, and they're looking at me like I fell off the moon. This is not the 60s. We're not interested in politics. So "Well, what, what, what? Then what are you interested in? Buddhism.
1: <laughs>
0: Eastern religions. How is Judaism different from Hinduism? <coughs> so I got an education on eastern religions and eastern philosophy and eastern thought and eastern practice i figured okay now i know the next summer a hundred and twelve women show up not interested in politics and they never heard of buddha (laughs) they just can't eat in our kitchen because they don't eat meat and they don't eat eggs and they don't eat fish And they need more carrots for carrot juice. (laughs) And how come everybody isn't vegetarian? And why don't we eat seaweed? We had four kitchens going. (laughs) Every year, whatever I thought I knew was irrelevant. (coughs) It's been 30 years. Of course, the only theme that stays consistent, the only thing that is compelling, the only thing that is relevant year in, year out, regardless of where the students are coming from, because Bezkhana now gets students from all over the world. Many of them don't even speak English, but they come. The only theme that is relevant to everyone, everywhere, all the time, every year, is family. marriage, children, parents, divorce, that's always relevant, always a hot topic, always good for at least six-hour sessions to be continued the next day. It seems that uh, the generation gap that was created in the 60s which we thought was pretty um, sophisticated is now making people very unhappy and very uncomfortable because without family, we don't have our bedrock, we don't have our stability, we don't have our inner strength. And breaking away and creating the generation gap gave us a social strength, kind of an external kind of strength, but it left us without the internal. And so now, for the last 30 years, we're trying to patch up, get back to that comfort, to that security, to that strength that only a family can give. I attended a party. This doctor was retiring after 50 years of being a psychiatrist and I was very curious to to hear his uh, summary of uh, the world of psychiatry for the last 50 years and he summed it up this way he said the first 25 years of my career of my practice I found myself saying to people sure sure you love your mother but come on deep down inside don't you resent her for something and the last 25 years of my practice I found myself saying to people I know I know you're angry at your mother but deep down inside don't you really love her (laughs) that's basically what has happened we discovered how angry we are at our parents for being imperfect that took about 25 years and then we discovered that no matter how imperfect they are and no matter how angry we may be we still love them and we need them. And we have to have a method by which the relationship can can thrive. A lot has happened in those years. In the last 50 years. And since everybody's thinking about calendars, in the last 50 years in the Jewish world, there has been a significant and unprecedented change and I think that of all the things that have happened in the last 50 years the disasters and the victories and the glories the thing that will be most significant a hundred years from now won't be any of the events it won't be the destruction of Europe and it won't be the rebuilding of Israel What's going to be more significant than anything else, as historians look back at these 50 years, will be the fact that in Jewish life and in Jewish thinking, every Jew, every Jew, regardless of affiliation, regardless of practice, regardless of lack of practice, every Jew has become significant. this was not the case a hundred years ago if you weren't practicing if you weren't studying if you were not contributing if you were not participating you didn't count and you were lost and you were written off and your family sat Shiva and you were gone in the last 50 years we have all learned that that can't be that that mustn't be, that it isn't true, and that every Jew is Jewish, and that every Jew is essential, and that the fact of being a Jew is more impressive and more crucial than how you go about being a Jew. It's strange, the whole world has always known this only we had to learn it in the last 50 years I guess what's very close you don't see it's like when the Rebbe introduced the idea of a fifth son we all know that there are four sons who come to the Seder But the Rebbe introduced a fifth son. The one who does not come to the Seder. Now the fifth son has always been ignored. You don't come to the Seder, we don't talk about you. We don't talk to you. We don't want to hear from you. You're the enemy. But the Rebbe introduced the notion that a fifth son is very much part of the Seder by his very absence the empty chair makes the fifth son very real and in these 50 years our relationship with the fifth son has grown has developed and matured and as a result Jewish life the Jewish people are forever better, healthier, different because of it. And it works something like this. We all have a good side and a bad side. We all have a Yetzah Tov and a Yetzah Hara. There's that in us that draws us to everything positive and holy and good. And there's a part in us that draws us to everything negative, unholy and bad that's pretty simple breakdown of the right and the wrong the positive and the negative uh, the conflict between the holy and the evil the result of eating from the tree of knowledge mixture of good and evil but it's too simplistic. It's too schizophrenic. There's part of me that wants only to be good. There's part of me that wants only to be bad. This is craziness. How can they both be true when they're so incompatible? How can I be both right and wrong? How can I be both good and bad? It doesn't quite make sense. But in the simplistic formula, every time you do a mitzvah that's because your good inclination was was dominant and every time you do a sin it's because your evil inclination was dominant so your Yetzirah made you do it or maybe maybe you are your Yetzirah and when you do a mitzvah that's kind of like an accident and your good inclination kinda snuck it in there but really you're bad And that's why 100 years ago, 200 years ago, the Jew who sincerely wanted to be good was confused. How can you really be good if you like to do bad? How can you be good if you like to do bad? And so there was only one option that people could see, and that is, you have to get rid of your Yatsahara, you have to be completely saintly or nothing at all, or you lose and so people try desperately to be tzaddikim, in most cases it didn't work one bad thought <laughs> and you're back to ground zero it was very frustrating it was very painful and it made a lot of people quite miserable. so it can't be that we have a light side and a dark side and the two have nothing in common that's insanity one of the innovations that Hasidus brought basically started with the Al-Terebus Tanya one of the innovations in very practical terms is that what it says in Hasidus is that it's really not so important that you be good it's not important that you are good it's important that what you're doing is good and that that really is the, the, the power of a mitzvah The power of a mitzvah is that here is something good that you can do even if you are not good. I had this experience once. A minister, a Baptist minister, calls me. He wants an appointment. He wants to come see me. I was a little surprised. But if somebody wants, okay, okay, Comes over to the Chabad house. He tells me he's the Hebrew scholar on the local campus of the Baptist seminary. It's, it's not the Southern Baptists. It's different. Anyway, he is the Hebrew scholar and he came to ask me what is the, be- uh, the correct definition or translation of the Hebrew word kadosh. You could have asked me over the telephone that's it for this you need an appointment so I'm kind of waiting for the punchline there's more to this so I said kadosh if you really want to know the real meaning of it is not just holy but transparent because there are many things that are holy but draw attention to themselves so they're not kadosh Kedusha means a, a created being that does not draw attention to itself; it draws attention to its Creator. So a mezuzah, for example, is an object of kedusha, because when you look at a mezuzah, you don't think of it as a piece of parchment; you don't think of it as a as a, uh, a, calligra- a work of calligraphy. You think of godliness, mitzvah when people would come to the Rebbe and the Rebbe would give him a dollar and say good luck and they would walk away saying maybe I should keep kosher <laughs> where did this come from? because the Rebbe was transparent godliness came right through and you walked away thinking I should do another mitzvah didn't say anything about a mitzvah that's called kedusha. <coughs> fine he sits there and I'm waiting for the punchline and this man must have been 65 years old he starts to cry like a child sobbing like a child I was, I was a little taken aback I thought this is going to be one of those stories that it turns out that he's really Jewish you know, like, <laughs> I was ready to get on the phone and tell everybody this great story he finally composes himself and he says i can't take this anymore i just can't take it i want to quit teaching this man was a missionary in rhodesia before it became zimbabwe it was a jungle i don't know what it is today but then it was literally a jungle and it was very dangerous for the missionaries who were there every day their life was on the line he was a missionary for 35 years this is devotion this is mesiris Nefesh when he got too old for that they called him back and they gave him this teaching job at the seminary and he says I want to quit I want to quit after all these years devoting my life to teaching the god of the world, whatever he says I wake up in the morning and I don't know if I'm good it's tearing me up I can't stand this and now I dread the thought that I'm doing this to my students so I said well as long as we're being honest let me ask you a question are there any things that you are not allowed to do according to your teachings according to, are there any things you're not allowed to do he says, oh sure, not allowed to commit adultery, not allowed to be homosexual, you're not allowed to kill I said, how do you know? how do you know you're not allowed to do these things? he says, well, not not the way you know it's not from the law, it's from the spirit when you are filled with the spirit, then you know then you naturally know I said, so here's my problem when you're filled with the spirit then you naturally know not to commit adultery but then you don't need to know that because you're filled with the spirit you're not going to commit adultery but before you were filled with the spirit when you might have committed adultery you couldn't know
1: how does this work?
0: he says that's what I'm trying to tell you it's, it's so frustrating it's so I said, so why did you come to me? Why didn't you go to your superior? He says, I did. And I poured my heart out to him. And he said, I know what you mean.
1: <laughs>
0: he says, I haven't had a good night's sleep in years. Now This, this, is, a serious, this is a serious dilemma. This is a legitimate problem. So I said to him, you know that there are seven commandments given to Adam and then to Noah and any human being who obeys these seven commandments is a righteous person and he has a portion in the world to come. If you're not keeping one of the seven, figure out which one and start keeping it because if you keep it, you are righteous. He says, these are his words. He says, you mean objective commandments? I said, yes. He says, that's brilliant. Good morning. <laughs> that's how it all started. Before there was Christianity, there were objective commandments. Objective commandments, a new expression. Objective commandments means, basically, that the commandment is absolutely perfect and wonderful, the deed is absolutely valid, eternally valid, even though you are a (laughs) shmendrik. This is basically the message at Mount Sinai. God came down to Mount Sinai to tell us this. You are a shmendrik, and you'll always be a shmendrik. But... (laughs) you don't have to be more than a shmendrik to do a mitzvah. And even as you remain a shmendrik, you can do things that are infinitely and eternally significant and meaningful. And we said, thank you. What else could we say? We weren't insulted because we knew it was true. At that time, we didn't have illusions of becoming tzaddikin. Hadn't even heard the term yet. (laughs) so at Mount Sinai when God came and said you know you're all a bunch of losers but I've got something for you to do that is really special how could we say no but we had forgotten this over the years and we had somehow come to believe that the whole point of the whole thing is for me to become something special and we looked at certain people and we said, wow, he's special. I want to be like him. That's not Judaism. Judaism is not, hey, let's all be like Moshe. No. Right from the beginning, the Torah says, there will never be another man like Moshe, so don't even go there. <laughs> Just do what he tells you, but don't even think of becoming like him. Doors closed. It's not important that I be the greatest and the best and the most perfect. Who cares? The only time it seems to be significant is when you're dating. Well, is he kind? Or is he wonderful? Is he smart? The minute you get married it doesn't matter anymore. (laughs) Even to the person you marry. (laughs) So it can't be of great significance. And that's why it's important that when you teach children to do a mitzvah you make it very clear that it's the act of a mitzvah that is perfect not your little nishamalah your little tzadikal or your little angel so you don't tell a child when he does a mitzvah you're an angel you tell him that was a mitzvah that's what God wants that's the right way to do it it, it is perfect you want to tell your kid that he's an angel? some other time Not when he's doing a mitzvah, because then the mitzvah is important. So that's one of the innovations that Hasidus brought, that the important thing is to be so clear in our vision, in our view, in our ability to focus on the mitzvah, regardless of what it will do for me, what I will become as a result of these mitzvahs. It's really not important. So when a person says, I was thinking of becoming more observant, but I don't know what will happen to me <laughs> what will it do to me if I start to behave this way nothing nothing somebody once said to me you know if I start going to the mikvah what will I become I said wet <laughs> that's all Of course you're doing your children a great favor and you're bringing great sanctity to the marriage. Will you become a different person? And if you do, fine. If it it refines your character, if you suddenly become more sensitive, great. It's a perk. That's not why you should go to the mikvah very simple example, practical example. We want our children to be kind. We want them to be generous. We want them to be thoughtful. We want them to be sharing, empathetic. And, and, we, and we encourage these things, of course. of avos. But then we tell our children to give tzedakah. You put a little pushka in his room, and you get him into the habit of giving tzedakah. Now, is he giving tzedakah in order to develop a more generous character or do we try to instill a more generous character so that he'll give the tzedakah when the time comes which is it? obviously we want our children to be generous so that they will do the tzedakah can you imagine a person saying to a poor man No, I don't think so. I'm I'm generous. (laughs) I worked at it for many years. I've given a lot of tzedakah. I have become generous. I don't have to give anymore. I'm already generous. (laughs) Of course, that's not how it works, particularly among Jews, because when Jews give tzedakah, they always resent it. It's not like when non-Jews give tzedakah because they feel like being generous. We give tzedakah and we resent it. (laughs) Again. (laughs) Gave already. I'm not generous. Leave me alone. But then we give anyway. Because you got to give. Because it is right. Not because I have to be right. So you come... You're a young Lubavitcher boy and uh, you know that the Rebbe wants you to go out into the street and stop people and put on film with them, give them Shabbos candles, shake a luav. whatever, think of something. <laughs> Just bother people you know, with something. <laughs> so you stop a guy and you say, would you like to put on film? He says, no, I don't need to. You don't need to? What does that mean? I'm a good person. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Would you like to put on film? He says, I don't need to. So why not? I'm a good person. So, well, glad- good. <laughs> You're such a good person. Maybe you'd like to put on film. <laughs> where, where does this motion come from? I don't need this. I'm a good person. Where did this come from? I am a good person even without all these rituals. Well, that's nice that's why God gave you the rituals, because you're a nice person, who should he give it to? who should God ask to put on film, not nice people he came to nice people and he said would you like to do some mitzvahs and he said no we don't need to, we're, we're nice <laughs> obviously the mitzvah is the end goal and in order to get to the mitzvah, it's very helpful if you're a little generous if you're a little considerate if you have a little bit of nefesh, if you can think past yourself that really helps get to the mitzvah but it's not that the mitzvah is some kind of a training process in order to make you into a mensch so the punchline is in Jewish life we need to know whether it's right whether I'm right give it up you're not going to be right And that's not what's important. What's important is, did you do what's right? This can save the world. This can literally save the world. Because if what's important is that I be right, we are in big trouble, and there is no end to this thing. Because if you're not right, and you're determined to be right, you are so busy with yourself you're so consumed by your own failures that you're not available to anybody including God on the other hand if God forbid you do become right (laughs) now everybody is gonna suffer because when a person becomes right he becomes terribly wrong if a person would ever God forbid be okay society would go right down the tubes. When people get good, life gets bad. Who created crusades? People who thought they were bad? Who made an inquisition? People who thought they were wrong? Who made a Holocaust? People who thought they had a bad idea? All the terrors, all the horrors of history came from people who were good who were right we don't want to be good in fact we should avoid it at all costs (laughs) try not to be good because when you're not good then you become nice you ever notice that when a husband does something his wife doesn't like he becomes really nice For about a week, too. If he knows that he did something his wife is not going to like, he becomes really nice. He thinks about her. She's on his mind. That's nice. He becomes suddenly very sensitive, thoughtful, caring. If the phone rings in the office, he knows who's calling. She found out. (laughs) She's calling. But if he's been good, he doesn't think about her. He's not sensitive, he's not thoughtful, he's not attentive. And if the phone rings and it's her, he's surprised. What's she calling for? I didn't do nothing. (laughs) So when we know we did something wrong, we become nice. Can you imagine if your husband did something wrong every two weeks? and he's nice for two weeks after he does something wrong this would be a very nice marriage so try to be, try to be bad at least at least once every two weeks of course we don't really have to try <laughs> <laughs>
1: natural.
0: comes naturally it is what's important it has to be good it has to be right we don't we shouldn't we can't be right enough anyway so let's focus on it being right because it can be right enough it can be perfect But let's get back to the eight Sahara for a moment you have a light side and a dark side and they're incompatible and they make you crazy because you don't know who you are are you good or are you bad the eating from the tree of knowledge created a mixture of good and evil before the eating of the tree of knowledge good and evil were separate and incompatible but eating from the tree of knowledge made good and evil a mixture there is no good without a little evil in it and there is no evil without a little good in it so your Yetzirah that wants to do what is wrong is not completely wrong. Can't be. If we look carefully, we'll find that even when we want to do what is wrong, it is motivated by some good instinct that has gotten fablongit. It's gotten a little twisted in our thinking, but the basic motivation is positive. The reasoning is faulty, and that's why we're not crazy. Because even when we're being bad, we're being Jews. And this is really the secret of the fifth son, the fifth son who does not want to come to a seder, who refuses to put on tefillin because he's already good, who refuses to give tzedakah, who doesn't want to belong to a synagogue. is motivated by an impulse that is really Jewish genuinely Jewish so even as he is rebelling he is being a Jew I was talking to a guy who is rebelling doesn't want to be religious anymore he wants to do his own thing his father has been telling him what to do all his life now it's my turn Now I'm going to be me. I said, that's very interesting because your father was once not religious and he rebelled. And he told his father, I'm becoming religious because now I'm going to be me. So I hate to tell you this, but you inherited this rebellion from your father. So if you think you're getting away and becoming your own man, no, this is also your father. Even the impulse to rebel you got from your father. So you just can't get away. Everything comes from him. You can't get away from being a Jew. Even when you insist on not being Jewish, it's because you're a Jew. It's coming from a Jewish instinct. And that's why we need to hear what the fifth son says. Not just tolerate. Not just explain away. Not just argue. Hear what he has to say because... He is telling you something very Jewish that you may not feel or think of because you're busy with some other aspect of being Jewish. For example, there yeah, are many, but let limit it to one. The fifth son doesn't want to come to a Seder because he feels that being Jewish in such a defined and limited way separates you from the rest of the world makes it sound like you have some agenda that is only for you and the rest of the world doesn't count and that doesn't make sense to him because Torah is supposed to be the word of God it's supposed to be true and if it's true how can it be relevant only to a tiny minority of the world's population how can truth be true only for Jews that's a very Jewish instinct so it's the Jew in him that says I don't like this something's wrong with this and he's right of course he's right Torah is not just for Jews in the Torah there is instruction for Jew and for non-Jew and in those instructions we are guided in our interactions with everything in the world. How to treat animals. How to treat objects. Certainly how to treat human beings. So he's right. The Torah is universal. The Torah is the truth for everybody. And with every passing day, that truth becomes more and more obvious to the whole world. To the point where non-Jews want to hear from Jews what the Torah has to say to them. So the son, the fifth son, who says, I won't come to a Seder, it's because he doesn't want to be Jewish? No. It's because the Jew in him finds something wrong in the way Judaism is being presented. Because it sounds like Judaism is true for Jews and not for anybody else. And the Jew in him refuses to accept it. So now his grandfather can sit down with him and say, you don't want to come to a Seder? You're a bad boy. You're, a, you're, a, you're not Jewish anymore. We, we disown you. You can't come to the house anymore. Or the grandfather can sit down and say, you know, there's, there's, there's some truth to what you're saying. I hadn't thought about it. I was so busy making a Seder. But you're right. So when he hears that the Labavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn said that we should reach out to non-Jews and teach them the seven mitzvahs he's not shocked he's wow, yeah, that's sure So here's, here's the, the, the summation We need to accomplish amazing things We need to make this world with all of its flaws, with all of its imperfections, with all of its evils, with all of its dark sides into a home for God. That's the goal. An impossible goal. To turn the lowest world into the highest of worlds. It's an impossible task. But in order to accomplish this, we have to be able to to see the invisible because if we go by what is obvious we're missing all the truth we have to see the invisible and when we see the invisible then everything is possible and what do we need to see that is invisible we need to see the motivation the driving um, thoughts, concerns that makes the fifth son refuse to come to the seder if we don't see that invisible good then we have nothing to accomplish we're simply going to lose if we see that invisible good then those people everybody said would never come to a seder not only do they come they make their own and invite their friends but we have to be able to see the invisible if we want to become In harmony, if we want to become healthy within ourselves, we can't just look at the eight Sahara and say, well, that's bad. There is something bad, but there's also something legitimate. Separate them. Don't throw out the good with the bad. When we get to see the invisible, when we train our eye to look past the surface and see the good that is everywhere, then we know how to handle the little bit of bad that is blocking our view, then we can accomplish impossible things. Then we can accomplish great things. I was in Israel recently. And we we're walking through Meir Sharim Surrounded by holiness. Everything there is holy but we're walking down this narrow street and because it was Hanukkah there was more of a presence of soldiers and security forces a group of about 40 soldiers were marching through Meir She'arim and as they walked down the streets nobody noticed them or would look at them or would talk to them it was the classical confrontation between the holy of holies and the secular of the secular they wouldn't look at him one of the soldiers sneezed and of course we say soldiers I don't know what picture, what image that brings to your mind but when you're talking about the soldiers in Israel you're talking about 17 year old babies you're talking about children and they're marching through the streets and one of them sneezed and I said Gesundheit he was so shocked really? (laughs) then he noticed that I didn't look like I come from Meishar you know when they started this country called Israel it was it was really an insane idea it was it was absurd some guy had a dream and in this dream he saw jews getting together from all over the world and living in this tiny little country what is he nuts he's got to be crazy see the jews in poland don't get along with jews of poland Because this one's a Galatianer. The Jews in Russia don't get along with Jews of Russia. Because this is white Russia and this is Ukraine. So Jews can't get along even when they have the same culture, the same language, the same country, and the same Tsarist. And this guy has a dream. He's going to take all of those Jews together from all of those countries and put them into a little country and they'll all get along. What was he thinking? he must have been thinking the Jews in Russia don't get along because they're confused they're Jews, they're Russians they're Ukrainians so the Jew in Galicia doesn't get along with the Jew of Poland because he's a Galicianer but what if everybody stopped being Galicianers and everybody stopped being Litvaks because they didn't live in Lithuania they lived in Israel then everybody would be just Jewish then they get along. Now, that's a brilliant idea. Get Jews back to just being Jews, then they'll get along. Because the reason they don't get along is because this one's a Galicianian and this one's a Litvak. Brilliant idea. So, they created a Jewish homeland, right? With the law of return that says that any Jew anywhere in the world can come because this is a land for Jews. So what's the problem? The problem is that you can search from north to south, from east to west, all over Israel, and you cannot find a single Jew. There are no Jews in Israel. There are Haledim. (laughs) There are Datim. There are Chilonim. There are the right and there is the left. There are the hawks and there are the doves. Try to find a Jew. Yeah. There are no Jews. You stop somebody in Israel and say, excuse me, what are you? And he says, Jewish. He's a tourist. <laughs> He's from Belgium. You know, forget about it. He's not Israeli. So these soldiers are walking down the street. It's worse than galatianas they have nothing in common why? because they are secular and they are holy secular and holy have nothing in common it was so painful to watch it is so heartbreaking but let's look at the invisible what is it that the pious Jew has against the secular Israeli? What? He doesn't wear a yarmulke. Doesn't keep Shabbos. Doesn't believe in Moshiach. He believes he is Moshiach. <laughs> Whatever. That's what's visible. That's what's visible. The boys and the girls, they hang around together in the bus stations. Terrible. Disgusting. That's visible. But now let's look at what's not so visible. This boy without the Yamulka, who is trained to be a soldier, is told that it's Hanukkah time. And uh, we've got to be a little more careful because the terrorists might use Hanukkah as an occasion. So they take these 17-year-old boys who don't wear yarmulkes and they position them in the most dangerous places and they give them bulletproof vests. They were all wearing bulletproof vests. They give them bulletproof vests and they tell them to stand in the most dangerous places because they're probably going to shoot at you and they stand there so we went in the middle of hanukkah we went to hebron we went to Ma'ars Hamachpewa to see where our forefathers and foremothers are buried we went and it was it was incredible it was great but how could we go there because there were these 17 year old boys up on the roof and down the road with their bulletproof vests saying shoot at me how can you not love them? The Rebbe once spoke about the Israeli soldier and he got all choked up he couldn't finish the sentence and he put it this way he said here is a 17 year old boy who doesn't know about the holiness of the holy land he was never taught and he doesn't even know the whole history of what went into the promises that God made about the land and about the and about the people and about the Jews he doesn't even know he's Jewish he thinks he's an Israeli but every morning he gets up and he stands at the border and he says you cannot harm another Jew without getting past me is that not a mitzvah? so the guy who says well I wear a yarmulke and I daven three times a day and I put on tefillin and look at them they don't do anything well yes that's true but consider the other side of the coin you put on tefillin and you daven three times a day and you wear a yarmulke and you live in Meisharim where everybody wears a yarmulke and everybody puts on tefillin and everybody davens three times a day and this boy doesn't wear a yarmulke but he doesn't sit at home where he's comfortable and safe. He is put where it's most dangerous so that he would attract the terrorist so that it will protect you that you wouldn't get shot at. So who's doing the bigger mitzvah? If there's such a thing as big mitzvah. so if we look for the invisible then we can accomplish the the impossible Jews can get along as impossible as that sounds Jews can get along the one who wears the yarmulke can get along with the one who doesn't just look a little deeper find the invisible in both in both Is it true that the guy who wears the yarmulke only wears it because his father insists? No. He may do it consciously because his father insists, but deep down inside he does the mitzvah because his soul yearns for the mitzvah. He's a Jew. And when you see the guy who doesn't put on the yarmulke, why doesn't he put on the yarmulke? Because his Jewish soul yearns for something more Jewish, not less. And for some reason he doesn't see the greatness of Judaism in a yamulke. So explain it to him. Show him where the yamulke expresses the kind of Judaism that his soul yearns for. And you'll find out it's the same Judaism. Because it's the same soul. So when we see the invisible, we can accomplish the impossible. And the Rebbe left us with three visions that were invisible and maybe are still somewhat invisible. But we have to start to see it. These three things are, every Jew in the whole world is imminently ready to start living by mitzvahs and Judaism and Jewish law all it takes is one kind word all it takes is one significant incident and every Jew in the world will be doing mitzvahs one incident one tiny event and the whole world non-Jewish world is ready to make peace put down the arms and start to live by morality it's a hair breaths away and one little discovery one little breakthrough and nature the earth will produce so much wealth that no one will have to work again We're a moment away from these three events.
1: Shalom Aleichem. How are you? You know I do a lot of talking. A lot of Zooming. Many classes, many subjects. But that's all formal stuff. Hopefully good stuff, but formal. We also have a Wednesday night meeting That's more informal and kind of um, Hamish. If you want to join us for that kind of an event, um, interactive, time for questions and so on, if you want to join us for this side of conversation, click on the link below and join us every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock Well, maybe not every Wednesday night, but we try to make it every Wednesday night at nine o'clock, a more informal chat, which um, can be more enjoyable at times than the formal stuff. So check it out, click on the link and join us. Try it, you'll like it.